Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. That might be it. Okay. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, starting at verse 30. If you can, please stand when you get that. John chapter 6, starting at verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the overhead there. The Bible says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Father, I pray that you would just bless your word today. So excited to be together with my brothers and sisters and even the people that are watching you know, via the video. Just pray that your word today would accomplish that which only your word can do, Lord, and that is change a human life. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In late December of 1980, something of a miracle occurred in Lingby, Minnesota. A man named Wally Nelson awoke to find the body of a 19-year-old girl named Jean Hilliard frozen in his words, solid as a log on his doorstep. She had laid there for six full hours in 22 below zero temperatures. He brought her to the hospital where to everyone's disbelief she was revived with no more damage than just a few blistered toes. As you can imagine, Hilliard became an instant celebrity. Talk shows flew her to New York City to tell her the story which they called the Miracle Girl from Lingby, Minnesota. She was even on the Today Show where Tom Brokaw interviewed her. But once the attention died down, Hilliard said the experience really didn't change the trajectory of her life. Almost everyone she knew told her she had been saved by a miracle. So she said she, said she kept waiting for something dramatic to happen, but her life has been normal. She got married, had kids, moved to a mid-sized town in Minnesota, and works at a Walmart. Things might have turned out differently, Hilliard said, if she remembered the six hours she spent frozen and if she had seen anything dramatic. She said, it's like I fell asleep and woke up in the hospital. I didn't see the light or anything like that. It was kind of disappointing. So many people talk about that, and I didn't get anything. So let me begin with a question this morning. I understand that it's an understandable thing to say, but what if the miracle was enough? What if living a normal life with ordinary kids in a regular town and working at Walmart was the reason for the miracle? And to bring application into our lives, what if we could all find the presence of Christ and the glory of God right where we live this morning? 
When I read that, I thought it was a great lead-in into today's message. We're going to see this morning that even though the day before Jesus had performed the miracle in the feeding of the 5,000, even those who partook of that bread and fish are going to demand yet another miracle for Jesus to prove to them that he is indeed God in the flesh. Now, we might think if we not only saw but partook of a miracle yesterday, our lives would be dramatically different this morning. But we're going to learn that miracles are a poor substitute for authentic faith. Look at verse 30 with me. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This whole section astounds me. These are some of the same people that the day before were fed with five loaves and two fish to the point they were stuffed to the gill. No pun intended. Well, actually, I guess that pun was intended. But their audacity to actually ask for a sign the very next day is hard for us to wrap our minds around. In fact, they might have still had fish stuck in their teeth as they ask, What sign can you give us to prove you are indeed the one whom the Father has sent? As I said, only the day before, Jesus had miraculously fed the 5,000. But the crowd now asked for another miracle because miracles never produce lasting faith. They use the Old Testament account of God giving them the manna in the desert during their times of wilderness wanderings. And admittedly, that was quite a sign. Every day, all they had to do was walk outside and pick up the manna off of the ground, and they would be fed for another day. But there were other signs and miracles besides this one. They had also seen the Red Sea miraculously part down the middle so that they could walk through. They even saw water come out of the rock when they were thirsty. And in addition to that, they also had a cloud by day and a pillar by night to guide them. The Bible tells us that even their shoes didn't wear out after 40 years of walking, and yet they were still defeated. Get it? <laughs> Defeat. I want you to know that during this pandemic, it's been very hard me telling bad jokes to an empty room. <laughs> but anyway, if you've read the account in Exodus, you know that because of these miracles, the children of Israel never doubted or complained, but spent all of their time praising and thanking God for his supernatural provision. Hardly. They incessantly whined and complained the entire time. It was like traveling with a bunch of three-year-olds who were in bad need of a nap. <laughs> you think I'm overselling this? Let me read you the account as it is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Bible says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink. 
for they were drinking of a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So far, so good, right? Now listen to the rest of the passage. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Please note it says not just a few of them, but with most of them, God was not pleased. The next verse continues. Now these things happened as examples for us that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and then stood up to play. And by the way, they weren't playing dodgeball. This was a drunken orgy. The passage then warns us, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Why would I spend so much time developing that? Because I want us to see that miracles do not consistently produce faith. And yet that's what most people crave. If God would do this or if God would do that, then I would believe he is there and truly cares about me. It reminds me of an old Janet Jackson song. Listen to part of these lyrics. What have you done for me lately? Ooh, 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 yeah. Wait, th there's more. What have you done for me lately? Ooh, 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 yeah. Now that's what I call poetry set to music. But this is exactly what both the children of Israel and the crowd in front of Jesus were both asking. Hey, God. What have you done for me lately? Some people say, if he would just do one miracle in my life, I would never doubt him again. That is just faulty thinking, my beloved. The Bible clearly lays out the only sure way to have great faith in God, and it is available for anyone who wants it. Romans 10:17 gives us the key to having great faith where it says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Do you want to have faith? The only way to do it isn't to buy the latest book, attend the next seminar, or send your seed faith money to some televangelist. The only way to have true biblical faith to navigate this evil world that we live in is to consistently read and apply God's word to our lives. Just ask Rita Viscop. I wish you could see her face. <clears throat> when I first came to Calvary Chapel, I was given the job of burning Pastor Chris's sermons to CDs. One Sunday, I couldn't get the file to work, and so I told him, the sermon's not working. To which Rita immediately replied, well, you actually have to apply it in order for it to work. I should have known right then that eventually pastoring this church was going to be a task and eventually drive me the rest of the way crazy. 
But in all seriousness, there is no other way, and there are no shortcuts. Oftentimes over the years when I counsel people who are struggling, one of the first things I will ask them is, tell me about your devotional life with the Lord. I can't tell you the number of times they have, have admitted to me that they have no consistent quiet time with God. And yet they often blame God for not fixing the problems in their lives. Let me tell you something. Thursday morning when I started the final draft of the sermon, I had no intention into going into all of this. But I strongly feel like that it was from the Lord and some of us obviously need to hear it. So to sum all of that up, miracles are a poor substitute for faith. Back to our accountant, John. Jesus had been talking to people who had been present on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when he had multiplied the loaves and the fishes. The crowd is now interested in having that miracle repeated. You see, they had been taught by their rabbis that when the Messiah would come, he would duplicate the miracle of the giving of the manna that had been given originally by Moses, and Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. They could see that. Why then should they not expect him to duplicate Moses' miracle, particularly that aspect of the miracle that had to do with repeating it six times a week for the entire 40 years of desert wandering? They replied in effect that they would not believe unless they received a sign. Now we find it hard to imagine how they could overlook the sign they had already received. But they were actually saying something like this. We admit it, Jesus, you did a wonderful thing yesterday. But before we believe in you as the Messiah, we want to see a real sign. What you did was interesting, but we are Jews. And we cannot forget when Moses fed the people, he did so for 40 entire years. We will believe in you if you do what Moses did and again feed us right now. Now on the surface, this demand for a sign is a bizarre shift in attitude from the day before when once again, these same people exclaimed, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. But it's really just an extension of their earlier perspective. Note the emphasis on the words do and work in verse 30. Notice also their requirement for belief, so that we may see and believe. Their belief in the wilderness was no less temporal and earthbound than their hunger was. No sooner had the image of Jesus' sign faded from their eyes that the need to see again returned. One commentator notes, they were brazenly demanding Jesus' credentials in response to his claim in verse 29 to be the one sent from God. The people's foolish demand demonstrated their thick-headed and self-centered curiosity, graphically illustrating the spiritual blindness that engulfs the unredeemed. The wicked question clearly shows the truth of what Jesus had said elsewhere. A wicked and an adulterous generation asked for miraculous sign. Jesus' miraculous feeding of the huge crowd the day before was ample proof of his deity. Unbelief, however, is never satisfied, no matter how much evidence is given. The scripture says that those who reject the truth of God's word will not be persuaded, 
even if someone rises from the dead. At the crucifixion, the unbelieving Jewish leader said mockingly, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Yet, when Jesus rose from the dead, a far greater miracle than just merely coming down from the cross, they still refused to believe in him. Rather than admit the truth, they desperately attempted to cover up the reality of the resurrection. And in our study this morning, the miracles they had seen merely whetted their appetite for more miracles. They were intrigued by what Jesus could do to ease the difficulties of their life. But they were not willing to believe in him as their Messiah and their Lord. What the people needed was not food, but life. And life is a gift. Food only sustains life. But Jesus gives eternal life. The words of Isaiah 55 come to mind. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and for wages for what does not satisfy? Jesus, however, had no intentions of gratifying the people's materialistic whims because for him to have done so would have been to assume the very role of the political and social Messiah that he had just rejected. Look at verse 32 with me. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That word you links the identity of his listeners with that of their fathers who are the ancient Hebrews who received the manna and still yet failed to trust in God. The crowd here was trying to manipulate Jesus into giving them what they wanted. They wanted another miracle to meet their needs. So they said, Jesus will believe in you if you do another trick. Only this one has to be a good one. Maybe on the scale of the one that Moses poured in the wilderness with the manna. Once again, after all, his miracle fed the Israelites for 40 years. Do you think you can do something like that for us? But Jesus didn't fall for their scheme. Instead, he corrected them. He informed them first that the bread they wanted didn't come from Moses. It came from God. And the Father still gives the true bread from heaven, only this time the bread doesn't sustain physical life, but rather spiritual life. And so we see the first thing that Jesus does is correct their faulty theology and their memory of Hebrew history. In essence, he says, let's get one thing straight. Moses did not provide you guys anything. God and God alone provided the manna. The Lord Jesus does not stop to answer this type of arrogant question on the part of any sinful man. Thus, he simply overlooked the suggestion and instead directed his remarks to the real spiritual issue. He said two things about Moses. First, Moses did not give the manna. God gave it. It was God's miracle. Second, the manna that was given was not the true bread from the true heaven. It was only earthly bread from a visible sky. He then turned away from the person of Moses entirely and instead pointed to himself as that true bread, which alone satisfies the real hunger of the human soul. Jesus said, it wasn't Moses that fed you. It was God. And God gives you not just physical manna, he gives you the divine bread of eternal life. 
The physical bread was nothing but a predecessor of the true bread that would come down from heaven. Seven times in this sermon, the Lord referred to his coming down from heaven, a statement that declared him to be God. The Old Testament manna was just a type of the true bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that bread came down. That was the first Christmas when he came to earth. And he also gave life to the world. This is Easter and the resurrection. And also Jesus is saying, basically, if you're basing your hope on entering the promised land on Moses and on the law, you may want to reflect upon the fact that Moses himself never made it in. He died in the wilderness, having seen the promised land from afar. Thus, God is telling us that the law is inadequate to bring us in to our promised home. Justin Martyr wrote, Moses remained on the hill until evening with his arms stretched out and supported, representing the foreshadowing of the cross. The other, whose name was Jesus, took charge of the battle and led Israel to victory. One thing I want us to see here is the error of the crowd in assigning worth to the wrong thing. All these guys can think about is earthly bread, while Jesus wanted them to see the important thing is himself, the bread that came down from heaven. And what we assign value to is of critical importance in life. For instance, in his book, How to Be an Atheist, which is really a book about just the opposite, Mitch Stokes writes, to illustrate, consider what makes gold valuable. We make gold valuable. There is no intrinsic value to gold. Gold is valuable only because we value it. That is, the value maker of gold is the human mind, particularly wants and desires. He then gives this example. Imagine you're stranded on an island, starving to death and being chased by all manner of beasts. Nature is trying its best to kill you. Right now, the thing you desire most is to survive with as little pain as possible. You need food, shelter, defense, and the like. Now, suppose you stumble upon a cave where pirates centuries earlier had stored huge amounts of gold bullion, but nothing else. The gold in this scenario would be a big disappointment. It wouldn't be valuable, valuable to you at all because you wouldn't value it. It would be worthless to help you. The gold would be no more valuable than any other of the common rocks that are on the island. I think that's a great example. And I pray we could all learn to assign value only to the things that are truly valuable. All I'm saying is, let's value the things that pertain to eternity because everything else is going to eventually burn up. Verse 34, please. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Who does this sound like? Remember back in chapter 4 when Jesus met a Samaritan woman at the well? Let me refresh our memories. This is verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Now listen to the woman's reply. It sounds just like our account this morning. She said, 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Just like the crowd we are reading about this morning, this woman misses the spiritual because she is focused only on the physical. Like the woman in John 4 who asked for living water in order that she would no longer have to draw from the well, this crowd failed to understand that Jesus was not speaking in terms of the physical, but of the spiritual, not of the temporal, but of the eternal. She wanted the living water so she would not have to go back to the well. The crowd wanted bread so they would not have to toil to maintain life. In their dullness, they exhibited the fact that in the words of 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Their continuing desire to use Jesus for their physical needs is evident from this demand and a clear indication of their superficial interest in him. And it still marks the shallow, temporary followers of Jesus who fill churches looking for their needs and desires to be met. And perhaps the saddest thing about that is there are always churches that will accommodate them. And even sadder, they are often the places that draw the largest crowds but actually have the lowest percentage of true believers. But Jesus confronted the multitude. We saw last week that he said, the only reason you seek me is because you want your stomachs filled. And the reason is you are materially motivated. Or to put it bluntly, they wanted food, but they didn't want the truth. They had no interest in knowing Christ. They just wanted him to provide for their wants and their needs. And for many people today, the only reason they follow Jesus is because they think there is something in it for them and that is the only reason they do it. They have a, if I do this for God, then God must do this for me mentality. And tragically, many Christians allow the love of things to intrude between themselves and Jesus, and therefore, they go on being spiritually hungry. In the Old Testament, we are told this happened repeatedly with the children of Israel. We are told that they desired things instead of God. Therefore, it is recorded in Psalm 106 that God gave them the things that they wanted, but he also sent a wasting disease upon them. We can do the same thing today. One of our hymns describes us in the terms of God's description of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. The name of the hymn is God of Grace and God of Glory. One stanza goes like this. Cure your children's warring madness. Bend our pride to your control. Shame our wanton selfish gladness, rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, lest we miss your kingdom's goal. Did you catch that one phrase? Rich in things and poor in soul. Is that your condition? Perhaps you have devoted most of your life to satisfying your hunger for objects. And yet you have never looked to God to be fed spiritually. You may pray, God, meet my physical needs. 
but you have never made a habit of praying, give me that spiritual bread that comes down from heaven. As we close this morning, this discourse of which we will be looking at the next few weeks has often been entitled The Discourse of the Disappointing Savior. It is called this because Jesus gives the Israelites what they need instead of what they want. A few years ago, Dr. Robert Pine, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, was driving with his family to California to speak at a conference. On their way there, they decided to stop at the Grand Canyon. Dr. Pine's five-year-old son was pumped to see it. He could hardly wait. All the way from Texas, his son kept asking questions about the size and the power of the canyon. As soon as they arrived, his son jumped out of the car and ran to the canyon rim and carefully examined it. Suddenly, his body language changed from excitement into dejection. Confused, Dr. Pine asked him what was wrong. The son replied, Dad, where is the cannon? I don't see the cannon. The son thought they were going to see the grand cannon. He was expecting it to be a mile high and a mile wide, and he was hoping to shoot it. <laughs> but just as with Dr. Pine's son, there was quite a bit of disappointment that day in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. The Israelites were looking for one thing and got something else, and what a shock it was to them. Jesus has become wildly popular, and there was a quiet demand of time on him and his ministry. People were coming from all over to hear what he had to say and witness his miraculous deeds. But it was only like a circus to many of them. They wanted his gifts or presence, but not his abiding presence. God forbid that be said of any of us this morning. We'll come back next week and we'll continue to study and hopefully learn from this account on what is truly important in life. And Father, I do thank you for your word. We hear so many voices in our head from media and of other people, Lord. It's hard to know without your word what we should be concentrating on, the things that are truly important and eternal. I pray that you would do a just a mighty sanctifying work within everyone within the sound of my voice. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ask Elder Klein to come up and John Biscuit, please. We're going to be taking uh, communion this morning. If you are uncomfortable with taking it, you can just please sit there.